coming up in this episode of Finding Common Ground. You are in a spiral. It's not just white and black. Republicans, Democrats, rich and poor. It's just people get upset now, and it's like, hey, I'm mad with you. I'm going to go and shoot up the whole place. You sent Dory and I a page from your book talking about how you hated white people and why you yeah. hate white people. I remember going to school, and the kids in the neighborhood in the school would nickname us Crip because in their mind, my mother was crippled, so they call you Crip. This is something I wasn't planning on sharing, but it's the truth. There are two sides to every coin. How do we deal with racial issues when they affect relationships? Finding common ground on all those issues that we come against. There's black and there's white. And I think as Christians, we have to learn how to get together because we're not in heaven. I've met more interesting people just by God just bringing them in. Republicans and Democrats. But a lot of times when it comes to race and it comes to culture and it comes to perception, even as Christians, we don't always understand. We look at it through our lenses. There's Bill. I grew up in a suburb of Cleveland called Parma. Uh, Any black the, people in Parma? There was not one. Not one black person, not Bill? Not one. Come not on, Bill, one. you got to have one, a nope. token black person, a token. And there's Odell. I grew up in Charleston, South Carolina, public housing, single mom, divorced single mom with four kids, and I came up through segregation and all that kind of stuff. If a black person drove through the town, the police would stop and escort them out. Bill and Odell are finding common ground. A part of what we have to do is listen to each other, find the common ground, and question, not questioning you like you're on a witness stand, but questioning you for a better understanding. Father God, we just come to you this morning, the precious name of Jesus Christ. God, with all the, another mass shooting in our country, and finger pointing and who's at fault and is the individual, is the weapon, is the legislation, everything that's going on, we just ask you to just cover us. We say it in words and in deeds, God bless America, but God, we just want you to bless Americans along with our country, America. So God, we just thank you for your grace and your mercy and your blessing us. But for how long, God? The Bible talks about those who were done unjust and they cry out to you in your throne in heaven and they keep saying, how long? And you remind them that every tear that was shed, that you keep it in a jar. But how long, God? So we understand that democracy is fragile. We understand that what we have here in America can go away. So the question is, how long, God? But God, we thank you for your grace and your mercy as we get ourselves, America, the country, and Americans, the people, to continue to follow you, God. God, we thank you and we praise you. And we do say and we do believe and we do hope. God bless America. Amen. Amen. Dear Heavenly Father, um, as our listeners go about their business and listen to this podcast, we ask them to take a deep breath, maybe a couple, as, uh, and let your peace roll over on them. As, uh, as there are many things that are causing stressors in our life, 
um, individual stressors that only the listener knows, but then external ones such as all these killings and inflation and the cost of gas and, uh, and just all the uproar that's going around us in the whirling. But Lord, we know you're the centerpiece. You're the peace that we seek. Uh, and we, uh, we ask you to help us slow down and see your peace and see your love, even in the midst of some of these crazy things. Amen. Hey, Odell, how you doing today? Bill, I am doing great, man. Listen, I have drum roll, please, Bill, drum roll. I've lost 34.4 pounds. And it's just interesting when you think about people are coming up to me. I had um, coffee yesterday with one of our favorite people, Felton Wooten and Felton came and he was talking. He says, Odell, after our business meeting, he said, man, you're looking great. You're looking great. And I, it kind of caught me off guard, right? And then he's, after that, he said, I listened to the show. I just listened to the show. I love you all. Sure, I love what you and Bill are doing. You all are making a difference. And then, Bill, I realized that, you know, we talk about, I talk a lot. Because like you said, I always talk a lot. I talk about losing the weight. But I understand, too, that, and I've asked the audience to join us or join me on this journey. And people are. I got a call the other day from a Dr. Bill Morgan out in uh, Mississippi. He's head of this uh, medical firm out in Mississippi. And he was just saying, you know, proud of me. And, you know, you know, that was at 20 some odd pounds and just keep going. And now I'm starting to hear all the stories, Bill, of people who says, if you don't lose weight, if you don't get healthy, what's going to happen in the end? So let me ask you, Bill, Bill, you've never had a weight problem. You've always been good looking, slim and trim. You've never had a weight problem, correct? Well, I could use to, I could uh, use to lose a few pounds. Uh, I think my doctor challenged me to lose five in a year. Uh, actually, during COVID, I lost 15 uh, just because I wasn't going out to eat and I was working around the house. Unfortunately, my wife gained 15. So that was not good. And uh, so I had to, I couldn't celebrate my 15 pounds. Uh, so, uh, but you know, my weight stays about the same. Uh, you know, when I used to run marathons, I was down to 137 pounds. And wow. uh, my, I remember when I went home, my mom, my mom, my grandma looked at me and said, are you sick? <laughs> What's mm. wrong with you? I said, no, no, I'm just burning a lot of calories. And because uh, I would run 30 to 40 miles a week, pretty hard. What I found, what I've rediscovered, I've rediscovered the Odell Cleveland, the little chunky kid in pay, playing peewee football. I, in all this journey, and I didn't, I was not looking for that person. The whole thing on weight loss is mental, in my opinion, I'm talking for me and me only, is psychological. It opens up a lot of doors that I thought were closed. And it's, it's one of those things like, wow, this thing is more than just weight. And let me explain. Back when I was very, very young and we used to play peewee football, of course. Now this is when they integrated the park and recreation centers that we call St. Andrews Park and Recreation. Now when I played in the black parks, you everything was by age. You know, we had the teams, you came in, you signed up to play, and you had the volunteer coaches, and it was all based on age. Well, when they integrated it, it changed. Now, all of a sudden, when we played at the White Park, it was like it was age and weight. So I remember that to qualify, I had to be 106 pounds or under. 
And I think I was like 108, 109. And I remember, Bill, the coach, uh, right, gentleman, was the coach of the team. Odell was good in sports, of course. And I remember him taking me to his apartment, and I had to sit in his dry sauna to sweat off X amount of pounds so I could make weight to play in the game. And, you know, as a child, you don't think about it. But one thing I do know, and this is not a psychoanalytical program, but everything that somewhat we interact with as a child, somewhere, somehow our minds trigger it. And I'm sure some of our more intelligent listeners out there, like Dr. Bill Morgan, uh, or some of the other folks all over the country can say, say it better than I can. But I, I stumbled back on some of these old feelings I had about weight as I'm dropping down 34.5, heading toward losing 50. And all that stuff caught me off guard. And since you've never had a weight problem, um, I don't, you know, not saying you don't know what I'm talking about. I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying these things are catching me off guard, Bill. Well, it, you know, you bring up some memories. Uh, I did CYO football in grade school and uh they had a i think they they broke it out by age and by weight as well and i was a pretty skinny kid uh growing up and uh they they, they would go and you go get your football equipment and uh uh they would you know they have all this used football equipment and nothing was designed to fit you it was okay <laughs> here's a pair of shoulder pads and you put it on and you go my God, my, it's coming off my head. I remember yeah. they used to have this thing for the hip pads and then yep. the hip pads. And then they had, it was all one piece and then it covered up your butt. Well, I was so skinny when I started running, that thing started turning around and the back <laughs> part came in the front part and it hurt. And uh, so, you know, and the knee pads would float around and I mean, you look like a mess running down there and the, the uh, but that was part of growing up. You know, I, you know, the, I, I never had a, weight problem i'm overweight now but uh no you're not no you're not 15 pounds i could use but i'm i'm pretty healthy uh the uh but when you were playing basketball you were like a state all-star you didn't have a weight problem then you had to be pretty thin to be running up and down the basketball court what what position did you play now it's interesting i played two or three positions i played guard i played power forward i played center and at six two you know we won the national we won state championships in high school we won national championships in college uh, many people asked me to try out for go overseas since i didn't get drafted in the nba and i was in love with with beverly so i didn't want to go overseas i wanted to finish college and get married now you brought up a very interesting point because from Odell, the, hus- the, the the chubby kid who used to wear Sears Husky uh, pants to now you start playing sports. And just the whole idea of playing sports was the exercise that burnt off the calories. So now all of a sudden, as you got into adolescence, it came along with playing sports. So now is Odell, the slim and trim, good looking high school guy playing sports basketball star. Now, you can eat anything you want to when you're in college. You know what we call that? We call that sea, seafood. All the food you see, you eat. Exactly. <laughs> and, you know, in college, we had this place called Duff's. Duff's was a smorgasbord in a way, meaning that you just go in there and you eat all you want. They used to hate to see the basketball team coming. We could just eat anything. <laughs> and you burn it off because you were practicing like it was a job. Now, 
for a lot of ex-athletes out there, including you, who used to be a runner, later on in life, the metabolism slows down. And you're like, oh, I still got it. But now, incrementally, the weight comes on. Now, all of a sudden, you look up and you're 100 pounds more than you were in high school for some yeah. of us. Yeah. So now, how do you deal with that? Because psychologically, you're still Bill Goble who could run with the wind, you know? But, but physically, mentally, emotionally, how do we deal with it? And do we want to deal with it as men? Yeah. Uh, you know, it's uh, you got to look in the mirror every day and, uh, you know, you mean to tell me I have to take my shirt off, Bill? Well, when you look in there, you go, boy, you're good looking. That's the guy you got to <laughs> And uh, Until, like they say, then you have man, what they call a man boobs or something yeah, like that. Well, just keep the lights off in the bathroom when you're looking at the mirror. Then it won't, you won't know to see any of that stuff. Yeah. The uh, you know, it's it's it is interesting as you get older, uh, your metabolism does change. Your eating habits change. Uh, and your exercise usually changes because, uh, you know, as you get older, your knees hurt, your back hurts, your hips hurt. You can't, you don't do the things that you used to do. And it's just part of the process of aging. My feeling is that if you keep active, okay, you won't rust. And uh, oh, I like that. Say that again for our audience, Bill. If you keep active, you won't rust. And by that, I mean, it's okay to take a nap as you get older. Nothing wrong with that, a power nap, but don't make it so that you're in that chair or in that couch or in that bed a long time. You need to go out and work in the yard, find a hobby that keeps you going, uh, walk. Everybody can walk pretty much. Uh, bicycle, whatever you, whatever thing that, that you enjoy. Some people hate running. I happen to love it. Okay. I've got a little issue with uh, my one knee now. So I've got to get, I think I'm going to get that fixed. And then, uh, but then I want to go back running. I enjoy it. Uh, I don't go very far. I used to run. Oh, at, at lunchtime, I used to work in Manhattan at nine West 57th street, right across from the plaza. And I remember uh, a little bit of a story here. I, I got transferred to New York city. I was living in Connecticut and uh, came from Chicago. And uh, the, uh, my boss was really old. I think he was 56. And, <laughs> and I was, I was in my late twenties. And, uh, he would go down to the maintenance department in this building and change and go and run in Central Park and uh, for lunch and then come back and get a quick lunch. And uh, I hadn't run in years since college. And one of my uh, competitors in business ran with them and they started giving me a hard time. And neither of them knew in my background on running that I could run. Right. So this, this guy who was my competitor to always rub my nose and stuff, I said, yeah, I'm going to come down and run. Well, that was before Nike and all that kind of stuff. So I went and got some cheap shoes at TJ Maxx, didn't even get good running shoes, uh, and a pair of shorts and a t-shirt. And I went out running with them and uh, they went in Central Park and they smoked me. I mean, this old guy beat me, the, my guy that was my competitor beat me, and I go, this will not keep. So I started running and uh, I started learning about running magazine and uh, how to train. I, the furthest I ran was uh, a steeplechase. So that's a little under two miles. And I decided, hey, I'm going to run a, a 10K. So I, I said it, it was 6.2 miles. So I started training for that. 
I remember running my first 10K in, uh, it wasn't in Central Park, it was in New York in a park uh, and had a big hill. Boy, that cleaned my clock. And they, wow. uh, but make a long story short, my goal was to run at lunchtime through Central Park all the way to uh, the back of Central Park, um, Harlem and back. It's about a 10K. Uh-huh. So I wanted to do a 10K at lunch. I just wanted to run one circuit, come back, take my shower, get, get a couple pieces of pizza and be ready to go. <clears throat> well, I ended up, found out Avon, it was Avon at products I was working for. They had a running team. So I joined the running team and uh, I was running that 10K at lunch every day. Wow. And, uh, and then I joined a running team and set all the records for the running team. So this, the guy who was my competitor, he didn't know I was doing all this stuff. So he says, Hey, come on out. I want to take you run. I'm going to show you how to run. I said, uh-huh. you betcha. You bet and uh, <laughs> I said, let's run to Harlem and back. He goes, Oh no, that's too far. I said, I'll tell you what, I'm going to go to Harlem. Why don't you wait halfway and I'll come back and pick you up on the way back. Wow. And wow. Uh, so I did, I ended up going and running a New York city marathon. And the first marathon I ran was in Cleveland, uh, Ohio. It was the Revco marathon. And uh, I, out of, I think there was 1600 people. I came in 50th out of 1600. Wow. I think it was number two or three in my age group. And then I ran New York city. I ran the first marathon it was two hours and 54 minutes. So I did under three hours. That's averaging six minutes and 28 seconds a mile for 26 miles. Bill, I didn't know all that about you. You know, it's interesting when you look at a fragile male ego and I'm again, not, I'm not a therapist, but I can only share with the audience and you the journey that I'm on. It's the whole psychological aspect of it, the mental aspect of it. You mentioned um, running a mile. I remember once when we were clocked, I was a freshman in college and I was a guard playing the guard position then. And we had to run a six minute mile. That was part of it. You know, it's almost like that preseason drill, mm-hmm. a six minute mile. And yeah. I remember failing that so many times. So it wasn't just running it. It's the whole thought process of how, how am I going to run it? You know what I mean? It's like, okay, yeah. I need to be on a certain pace. And I never had to do that before because we grew up in the hood playing basketball. You know, basketball is just basketball. That's what we did. So one of the things, as you know, and audience know that I'm from Geechee Gullah people in Charleston, South Carolina. And one of the things that we used to say in South Carolina is this, and this is Geechee. So I'm going to say it Geechee way, interpret it. Then I'm going to tell you what it means. And then I'm going to tell you what it means the way white people would understand it. Fair enough? Fair enough. Okay, we say, you dig your grave with your teat. Let me say that again. You dig your grave with your teat. Okay, so now the interpretation of what that Geechee language just said was, you are digging your grave with your teeth. Ah. And what that means is that you are continually eating the foods that make you sick and will eventually kill you. Now, the white people interpretation, Bill, would say your diet, you'd not have a healthy diet. Does that make sense? So Mm -hmm. it's like you're digging your grave, like some would use a shovel, you're digging it with your teeth. You're eating yourself to death. And those are the type of things that we laugh at it from a Geechee, you dig your grave with your teeth. Okay, that's funny, but it's wisdom even behind 
that message. Now, you said something about being healthy and working out and growing up with uh, memories of difficult things. Right. Uh, you, you, you sent Dory and I a page from your book talking about how you hated white people and why you yes. hate white people. Right. Uh, I think that was, that was some good insight on you know, where you were coming from. Yeah. Uh, in that, and how old were you when you wrote wrote that section? I mean, when you uh, lived that section? Ah, I think I was. We were living in public housing, and to the listening audience, let's look, give me a small background. This was a section when we were in public housing. I think I was around seven or eight, and at that's that's the Christmas when my mother told us, "Listen, we just haven't. You know, her job wasn't going well. She was working for Manhattan Shirt Factory, and it was no money." You know, I don't know if anyone ever been in a position with no money. So she said, there's no money. We won't have any Christmas this year. But she said she was going down to the Salvation Army. It's either the Salvation Army or the Red Cross Bill. I think it was the Salvation Army. When she went down and applied, she asked this young, this lady there. And the lady said, I'm sorry. All the slots are taken. However, I would do, see what I can do. And that powerful piece was, even though... I was sitting there hanging on the thought that this older white woman said, I will see what I can do. And this is Christmas Eve, Bill. So I know this woman was probably a grandmother, a mother, or what have you, but she was a volunteer. And I think it was Salvation Army. Let's just go for Salvation Army for clarity purposes. She had more things to do than to find some extra bags of food, some toys, some fruit, and bring it to some black folk in public housing who she didn't even know. Mm. So I remember sitting there on the back of the couch, staring out of the window, looking at every car that came by, holding on the hope that what my mother said, this lady would come and help us. And eventually she did show up. And that's where I was saying in my book that at one time through integration and all the negative things that happened to me, and it's like, was always, when I came into contact with white people, the, the, the outcome was always negative, just negative. So I got to the point, I was like, I hate dealing with white people. I hated white people. And I tell the story that in the midst of all that, the lady who came to help us in our time of need was white. And that's where in the book, in that chapter, it was so powerful. And as I share with my grandson, Legend, Legend, I hope you never grow up to hate white people the way I did, because it's not the people so it, without giving away everything with the book, that was powerful for me because we just didn't have anything. And a lot of times when you grow up poor without food, you eat food down the road. Because back to what I was saying earlier, I believe there's a direct correlation between what one's experiences as a child to how one have a relationship, whether it's with money, whether it's with food, whether it's with individuals. And again, I have no kind of degrees or any certification to say Odell knows what he's talking about. I'm just a good looking black guy who's 34.4 pounds lighter, my friend. Well, you give a good thing. And folks, the book that he's talking about, he's writing to his grandson, Legend, uh, kind of an autobiography of him growing up so that he gives Legend lessons in life of things that he had to go through that he doesn't hope his grandson does, but what he learned from it. And the particular chapter uh, before he got to this white lady, uh, Odell talks about how 
poorly he was treated in his jobs uh, and, yeah. and how he had to uh, basically work the late shift, go home and study, get up early, go to school, play basketball. And it was a continuous cycle to the point almost exhausted a young man. Uh, it's a, it's going to be a great book when it's finished. Uh, and uh, we'll, we'll publicize it more when it comes out. What's the title you're using? Uh, it's called Come Walk With Me. Just okay. come walk with me. And it's the sub the sub thought is I am writing a letter to my grandson to come walk with me. And I'm like legend. But this situation around race has gotten bigger over the years. So we're inviting white people to come and eavesdrop. So now it's bigger than just legend. It's everybody come and walk and let's walk this thing together because we have to find a way out of what we're in right now. We're in a spiral, Bill, in my opinion. We are in a spiral, and it's not just white and black, Republicans and Democrats, rich and poor. It's just people get upset now, and it's like, hey, I'm mad with you. I'm going to go and shoot up the whole place. But that's another show. Yeah, that's another show. But you're right. Um, you, you talked about childhood experiences and how impactful. And I've been studying this thing because we're doing this Youth uh, Resiliency Summit in October. Wow. In you know, over the last two weeks, God has brought in people to teach me about uh, ACEs, acute childhood experiences, and how they affect your health going forward, and and what you can do to fix those and make kids resilient to acute childhood experiences, ACEs. So, give me a minute, and I'll walk you through it. You know, this is the fifty thousand foot view. Uh, Two thousand eighteen, the Center for Disease Control did a study with about 17,000 people in Kaiser Permanente. And they, uh, the, the, the objective of the study was to see if there was a common denominator between uh, health issues uh, and, uh, and addictions and things like that. So heart disease, uh, hypertension, diabetes, you know, a whole bunch of stuff and cancers. And they found there was, and it was called uh, acute childhood experiences that nicknamed ACEs. And they found that if you had four ACEs before you were seven, it not only affected your brain development, but it internally affected you and caused you 90% chance you're going to have an illness, one of these illnesses later on in life. I mean, just breakthrough uh, information. There's a, there's a movie called Resilience, and uh, it's on YouTube. I think it costs six bucks. And there's a lot of trailers on it, so people want to look it up. And it talks about ACEs and it talks about how to make kids resilient. That's the, that's the objective. So as I'm learning this from uh, uh, various people that are going to speak at our uh, summit, they, we were going to call it the Youth Protection Symposium. And they said, you know, protection sounds like child abuse. Okay. Or yeah, right. You know, we've got a bigger, bigger thing here uh, with resiliency. And if we can teach kids how to be resilient, the chances of them having these ACEs to affect them later on in life gets diminished. And the way you, you, you give resilience is you have a mentor, an adult person in their life that cares about them. You have them with friends that care about them. Uh, you take care of some of the social and emotional needs of them, but also the physical food and stuff like that. And, you know, things that we find is common sense. And, uh, so youth organizations, your church youth group is one. And when you get somebody in a small group that mentors kids, that's one way. So we started talking around and they said, hey, do you know the Chief Justice Supreme Court of North Carolina, Justice, Chief Justice Paul Newby, who's been on our show, 
yeah. and also a personal friend of both of ours. Uh, he has started an initiative called Resilience North Carolina, and he's got a task force and and, uh, and he got a grant and they're going to work because he he found when he learned about this, that the people that were shown in the judicial system in the courts had a lot of aces. Right. And he says, if I can make kids resilient at an early age, I'll have less customers in the court. And uh, so that's that's what this organization does. So I contacted Justice Newby, uh, Chief Justice Newby, and he he's put me in touch with their task force head. I'm supposed to call him today or tomorrow. And we're going to partner, figure out how we can help them with this summit. And so the question I had after that long thing, can you remember some acute childhood experiences you had growing up and how did you become resilient to them? Oh, Bill, I can remember so many. I am the poster child for ACES. I should be the poster boy for ACES. Um, I remember the whole thing on, and I always go back to integration in a way, but even before that, I remember when my mother, I don't remember when my parents got divorced. I don't remember that. I was too young. I remember some of it, but not that much of it. Um, I remember living with my grandparents and being raised by older people are different from being with your parent, single parent. I remember my mother having a massive stroke. I remember going to school and the kids in the neighborhood and the school would nickname us Crip because in their mind, my mother was crippled. So they call you Crip. You know, I remember that. I remember doing integration. The white kids would always um, yell or mouth mild when you uh, pronounce something in your mouth, the N-word. And I remember the teachers in South Carolina, and this is not all but some, in South Carolina, Bill, a lot of the teachers didn't want Black kids in the school. I mean, you know, that was just the way it is. I believe that integration was forced on folks. And if the adult in the room, which was the teacher, and not all but some, didn't want Black kids in the room, then our punishment was so much more. I remember going to the principal's office one time. Wow, you make me think of all this stuff, Bill. Thank you. Um, boy, you know, when you open up the floodgates, everything just come back. And I guess as men, when we make ourselves vulnerable, we become healthy. But this is something that really st stuck with me. One day I was in class and the teacher, for some reason, I must have did something, you know, because, you know, the adult is always right, right? Yeah. So I remember her saying, Odell, let's go to principal's office. So she went in the principal's office. I sat in the chair. Okay, I've done that before. She went in and talked to the principal. And he came, she came out with this smirk on her face. And I said, oh, that's different. And I remember going in and the principal saying, okay, Odell, you did this, either three days suspension or three licks with the paddle. Well, you know, I'm a veteran at getting paddled, you know, corporate punishment. That wasn't a big deal. But what I didn't understand, Bill, was the principal and the teacher had come to an agreement that they were going to leave the intercom on. Now, in the schools we went to in South Carolina, you had a way where in every classroom there was an intercom that the office can call, hey, miss such such a person, can you send Bill Goldberg down to the principal's office or something like that? Well, I didn't know, but my whole conversation with the principal was still part of the, the intercom. Everyone in the classroom could hear it. And then when I got those three licks, I thought those three licks was somewhat forceful, 
But a child in the third grade is like, okay, well, this is the adult. He's he's literally taking a big wooden paddle and smacking your butt three strong times. Think about that. Here's this white guy standing over me um, with a big giant wooden paddle uh, hitting me, you know, something that today's world we would say you could go to jail for. But that's not the story. The story was when I went back in the classroom, everybody was laughing and I didn't have any idea what they were laughing for because it's like, okay, talking about aces, this is Odell back in the classroom. And then at, at recess, one of my friends said, hey, you know, we heard you getting your three licks. And I'm like, how did you mean you heard me? Well, it was over the intercom. So Bill, here's, here it is talking about childhood stuff. Here's a grown woman probably was 20 something late 20s you know going into a grown man an administrator who's probably I don't know like you say oh 40 50 I don't know and they decided that they were going to do something to embarrass a child to embarrass a child Bill Mm -hmm. so you had to deal with all that and it's like why you know back to like you said uh, when children get abused, and I'm not, again, I'm not psychoanalyzing anything, but you asked me, and this just came flooding th- to me, this is something I wasn't planning on sharing, but it's the truth. And it's like, you're a principal, you are a teacher in the late 60s, early 70s in South Carolina, your word was gospel, because if the teacher said it, by God, you must have done it. If the teacher wrote it on your uh, report card, you must have done it. If the principal said he did it, that was it. So those are the type of things happened in the last one, and I'll leave it alone. I remember being forced, they tried to put me in special ed class. In South Carolina, where I'm from, Bill, and I'm sure it wasn't this way in Perma, a lot of the Black kids got put in special education class. Nothing against special education. That's not what I'm saying. But it was systemic. And I remember when they said, you could only come back to school if you enroll in special ed. I remember my mother, who's handicapped, walking three miles with a wooden cane in her right hand and a big, long metal brace on her left leg, challenging them, saying, no, you're not going to put him in special ed. And they made me go to some kind of therapist. And as a child, I remember going to some doctor's office, downtown Charleston, downtown Calhoun Street, King Street, and they put little, put some kind of probe on my head with little wires, little different color wires. I think it was white, green, blue. I don't know. Bill, this is crazy. I'm even thinking about this stuff. And young doctor came out and did all these tests. And he said, no, nothing's wrong with him. He doesn't need to be a special ed. But think about this though, Bill. If that doctor, young doctor, had bought into the system that this young black kid need to be put in special ed, and I'm certifying it by signing this piece of paper, I would have been a special ed, and I think my life would have had a different trajectory. Nothing against special ed. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is answering your question, Odell, has any of this stuff ever happened to you? And I had no idea I would even talk about this, but your answer is yes, my friend, yes. And some will say, no, nah, no, nah, that could have never happened, but it did happen. Then, then the next—that's an incredible story. I mean, just just mind-boggling. Uh, don't doubt it for a moment. Uh, 
the, the question I have is how did you become resilient so that you got my mother, at? my mother, my mother said to us, we could be any now here. Think about this. Here's a high school dropout who eventually went back and got her GED working at a factory, living in public housing, uh, had a massive stroke, got you, you divorced single mother, four kids. But she always told us you could be anything you want in life as long as you did three things. Trust in God, get the best education that you can, and always reach back and help other people. That was it. And we believed her, Bill. We believed her. And you think about it, the power of someone believing in you. Back to your point of a mentor. You stated a mentor. Well, I don't know if my mother was, quote unquote, a mentor, but she was an adult who we could trust and who believed in us. And I think over time, then a coach, Coach Jerry Waters, happened to be white Southern gentleman who was a coach. We didn't agree on a lot of things, but we agreed on winning. And Coach Waters helped, along with my grandfather, put discipline there because you have to be disciplined. And I think basketball in America is so different. If you're poor and you're Black, and you're a male child, that's one thing. But if you're poor and you're black and you're a male child and you could dunk a basketball or you could run fast and you could do that, you're a great athlete. It's two different systems, Bill. It's a system where this black athlete will be treated differently. Uh, folks will come into the hood and pick them up and take them to practice from peewee to high school, to middle school, to college. And I used to always say that as athletes, because back in the days, you know, and I know it was some athletes, not just black, but some of them who couldn't read or write, but they were in college playing sports. Mm -hmm. And that was the path that I was able to get on this other path called sports, which allowed me a whole different obstacles that if I couldn't play sports and I was poor and I was black in the hood, a lot of opportunities or doors that was open for me would not have been opened. So, so that was the pathway for resistance, becoming resistant or resilient uh, for you to become successful. That's interesting. Uh, I think, uh, you know, as I reflect on mine, I, I, I know some acute childhood experience. I remember, in fact, I was looking at it the other day to see if I could see the scar on my wrist. Uh, when I was an infant, I don't know how old, but I was pretty young. I was in the guy's arms and I don't, I don't know if he was smoking a cigar or a cigarette or he took a cigarette lighter, but he burnt my wrist mm. bad. And I remember that as a young kid. And, uh, and uh, I do remember my parents never leave me around that guy again. Mm. And, uh, and there's other childhood experiences that I had, but I think the thing that got me out was our family. Cause we, you know, we were a large family uh, with not only our, our immediate family, which is 10 people, Count myself, but my 66 first cousins that were in walking distance. So I, and then, you know, I got into sports and I got into scouts. Uh, even though my dad had to work a lot and he wasn't around a lot, my mom was always home. Uh, and, uh, you know, she, she never drove. Uh, she, she lived and died within one mile where they got married. Wow. Her whole life. Uh, so she had a very limited, um, uh, scope on things. And, uh, and, uh, she went to high school and my dad went to high school and neither went to college. But, uh, you know, it's interesting as I, as I learn more about these aces and resilience, I go, man, it does make sense. 
because uh, I'll give you an example. If you carry hate around inside of you for somebody, something, it eventually eats you up. Yeah. It eventually gets yeah. you. You got to let it go. Uh, I know people get wrong. There's no doubt about it, but you got to let that thing go. The uh, Well, this has been a good, good conversation. Uh, I think we need to continue it. I think we'll get some of the professionals on. We had Sharon Heist on. Uh, she was great. And I think we're going to get Kelly Graves. She's another great uh, Dr. Kelly Graves, she, she knows about ACEs and she has a foundation that works to make kids resilient. And then I think uh, maybe we find that fellow who's leading the task force and maybe get him on uh, for the Justice Newbie. You think, you know, we talked a lot about weight from a psychological aspect. We talk a lot about weight loss and opening up doors, the whole thing on trauma and I love what you're doing. And I definitely want you to give the audience the date of the event again. But as men, why don't men, we talk about this kind of stuff. We, we're not open to talk about this kind of stuff because I had no intention today to talk about what happened back in school and all that. But I think it's good. I think it's refreshing. I think when men can be vulnerable, then it gives permission and allows other men to be vulnerable and deal with situations like, okay, why did this happen? Why did that happen? What's your thoughts there, sir, as we close? Uh, well, women are much more social. So they'll have their network of friends and they will share pretty much everything with them uh, that select friends. Guys don't have that network. You know, we'll go out hunting, we'll go out fishing, we'll go out playing golf, but we don't get into the weeds. Like, and that's what part of common ground is about. That, you know, you find someone that is different than you and you find common ground. And as you know, five years ago, I couldn't have asked you that question. Right. And five years ago, I wouldn't have answered it to you. Yeah, exactly. So uh, so this is part of the process of ha- finding common ground with an individual uh, and, uh, and someone you, you trust and love that you can ask those hard questions and let them open up and feel vulnerable without saying, man, you're an idiot or you did something wrong. It's all on you. No, no, that's not it at all. Uh, In fact, while you were telling the story, I was listening. I was paying attention and I have a short attention span. So, uh, (laughs) so that was a good thing. But, you know, my point is that uh, that's part of the friendship that individual men have to do. And, you know, we encourage our readers, if if you're not in a small group or don't have someone um, start looking for an individual. And uh, you don't have to start out with the heavy stuff, uh, but you can certainly start out, you know, enjoying each other's company and a meal. Uh, It's a good place to start. Maybe going on a trip together, a common interest, whether it be golf or hiking or camping or fishing or whatever it is, uh, and and start doing that. And then those barriers will break down. And, uh, you know, I find even uh, when we do do our, our scouting events, it's those times that we sit around the campfire when all the kids are asleep that we really talk. We really talk. And uh, so that's, those are important things. The, uh, I appreciate you sharing that. I know that some of those stories are hard, uh, difficult to, to bring up again. And uh, we, the date for the event is October 28th. It's a Friday in Greensboro. We originally had it uh, at a venue that holded about 120 people. But uh, we were told that we will get a lot more, five, 600 people. So we're moving it, I think, to the Marriott downtown Greensboro. Uh, and that 
and we've actually had a, a couple people from out of state that heard about it that are coming up, somebody from Florida and somebody from Texas. Uh, so we expect more of that. We haven't really started publicizing it yet. Uh, and I'm kind of glad we didn't because we changed the name, we changed the focus. Uh, and uh, I think it's a much more powerful uh, summit for the education of anyone that's involved with youth uh, should come to this. Uh, it's fairly inexpensive. It's 20 bucks. Uh, you get fed and you get, we're going to have a keynote speaker and then we have four breakout sessions in the morning, a lunch uh, for you and a lunch speaker, four speakers in the afternoon in breakout sessions, and then a closing ceremony, probably start about 839 and end at four. Uh, so it'll be, it's one full day and you can come and go as you want. Uh, so we're, uh, we're on our way to do that. Uh, we've got Jim uh, Alighetto is uh, our executive director and he's, he's running with it, which we appreciate. And uh, Bill, if they want to register or learn more about it, can you, they email you or what do they do? Cause you they want to learn more about what's going that's on. That's a great question. We have a website called youth of nc.com. So it's youth of nc.com and you can go on there and there's information uh, and there's going to be, you can email us from there and we'll put you on the wait list. And when we, we're going to actually start sending out saved a date probably in July, uh, end of June, beginning of July, uh, for that. And then registration will probably open August 1st and, uh, we'll just see how many people register. Perfect. Perfect. Well, Bill, I appreciate you. And thanks again for always pulling stuff out of me that I have no intention of sharing, <laughs> but that's what you do. Well, you know, right now I've pulled uh, what, 32 pounds out of you. 34.4, my friend, 34.4. I need everything. <laughs> well, I'm so proud of you for doing that. It's, I know that's, that's not easy and uh, keep on it. By the time we start going to uh, Paris and London with the girls in September, you you know you you're gonna be so skinny in that seat. Bill, healthy, it is it, is going now. The psychological aspect is going now from weight loss to being healthy, there you staying go. alive, there trying you to go. play with my grandkids. Yeah, you know, instead of writing a book to legend that if I didn't take care of myself, I might not be around. By taking care of myself, I may be around to read the book to legend. Yeah, now you're talking. That's a great story. Thank Love you, you, my friend. Love you too. Bye-bye. Find Bill and Odell online at thecommonground.show. This podcast is a production of BG Ad Group. Darren Sutherland, executive producer. Jeremy Powell, creative director. Jacob Sutherland, director. All rights reserved. This podcast is proudly sponsored by. Whether you're a big, medium, or small business, managing and growing the bottom line is important. Focus CFO brings the experience and financial acumen of a Fortune 100 chief financial officer to your company at a fraction of the cost. PL help, internal reporting processes, or any business transitions or events. Focus CFO will help you and your team have a CFO in your company's back pocket. Focus CFO. Learn more at focuscfo.com. This podcast is brought to you by Yes Weekly, the triad's largest circulated and best read weekly magazine. You can also find us online at yesweekly.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Yes Weekly.
your trusted news leader for local arts, entertainment, music, food, and more for nearly 18 years.